0: We'd love for you to check out our social media pages at CreekwoodUMC or our website CreekwoodUMC.org for more information about what is happening and how you can grow with us in our mission to share God's love. If you feel inspired, there's also a way to give at the top of the website. Thanks for listening to this sermon, and we hope it inspires you in your journey with God.
1: We have two scriptures for our worship today, the first being Deuteronomy 17 verses 14 and 16. When you have come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it and you say I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me even so you must not acquire many horses for for himself or return the people to Egypt in order to acquire more horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you must never return that way again. And from Matthew 2, 13 through 15. Now, after they had left and an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child, his mother and flee to Egypt Thanks be to God.
2: This is going to seem like an odd question as we're leading up to Christmas and it has no relevance to Christmas whatsoever, but um, if you've seen the movie Mary Poppins, the original Mary Poppins, um, would you say that Mary Poppins is the villain or the hero of the story? Raise your hand with hero. Okay, raise your hand with villain. Interesting. Okay, interesting, because says Mary Poppins comes into an established order and precision, and everything is disciplined, and the kids are whipped into shape, or at least as best as those can co- can govern, and Mary Poppins comes and introduces this whole new concept that kids don't need to be miserable to behave. She, she disrupts this family order where Mr. Banks has a, a tight hold on everything and he's order and precision and everything goes well and Mary Poppins comes and, and even gives his wife this idea that she has a voice and the kids this idea that they can be their own selves and, and wouldn't you know it, he gives, she gives Mr. Banks this idea that he's allowed to be happy. He's allowed to give a loan to a good man with a decent business plan versus a a shady man with an established business plan. Mary Poppins ruins everything, so I don't understand why you don't see that she's the villain here. Mary Poppins ruins the established order of things. To Mr. Banks, who is the heavy-handed power broker, the one who's in charge. And quite honestly, the person we tend to be. Mr. Banks is what we call in churches the Back to Egypt Committee. Have you all ever heard of, raise your hand if you ever heard of the Back to Egypt Committee before, if you've heard, this is church speak for those of you who haven't been in church in a while. Um, I would would ask you to raise your hand if you've been on the Back to Egypt Committee, but chances are if you have been, you don't know that you have been, because the Back to Egypt Committee is generally the group of people that says, you know what, it was so much better when we did it this way. right, it was so much better. So I'm not saying this is true. I want you to hear, I'm I'm honestly saying this is not true because I don't hear this at all at Creekwood, but at Creekwood, the Back to Egypt committee would be, you know, it was so awesome when we used to worship at Lovejoy cafeteria and it was just such a personal environment and that's true. That is absolutely true because when you have to sling chairs at whatever Mark Puck at five in the morning or something like that, when you have to sling chairs and set them up, there's a bonding that goes on. You're in it. It's a sacrifice and it's really exciting. But ask any of those people that were setting up chairs week in and week out at seven in the morning, whether they would want to go back and do that or not. What's the answer? No. But her nostalgia is that, oh my gosh, that was a really great time. At Stonebridge United Methodist, where I was an associate for a little while, and this is a little bit more of a a serious example, but um, we, we got in a time where there was just a little bit of church confusion, a little bit of church kind of drama that was going on. And there was this whole group of people that said, you know when Stonebridge was really the best? It was when our founding pastor was here. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with the history of Stonebridge United Methodist Church, the founding pastor was there for about five and a half years and let them in, uh, left them in a massive lurch when he stood up and said, you know what, I've been an addict for the last two years, and I'm not going to be your pastor next week. But it was awesome under his leadership. In Kansas, I was a youth minister in Kansas, and there was this event called Harvest Dinner, And Harvest Dinner was a fundraiser um, for the youth group that always lost money, (laughs) right? It was a fundraiser for the youth group, but it always lost money, and so I go in, and I start in July, and they said, well, this is in October, we do harvest dinner, and I said, well, what do we do for harvest dinner? And they said, well, everybody contributes food, and we we bring hams, and we bring potatoes, and we bring all those things, we have this one really big church-wide dinner, and the youth, uh, and Sunday school classes produce baskets that... um, Uh, that people auction, you know, bid on for, you know, youth group support. And then the, the kids get up there and do, and this is a really great terminology, but they do a slave auction, right? And they go hang Christmas lights and all sorts of stuff. And I said, well, that's the first thing that probably needs to go right there. And I said, I, so sounds like a great event. So we start preparing for the event. And what tends to happen in traditional events that have happened for the last 45 years is that they kind of go on because someone just needs them to go on. And what I found is that nobody was donating any food whatsoever. And Sunday school classes weren't doing any baskets, but I was brand new and I wanted to be successful. So what do I have to do? I have to go and I have to buy all the food. And so by the end of it, I, like, I realized this youth fundraiser has lost us about $2,000. And when I pointed that out, the church financial secretary says, oh yeah, that loses the money every year. I said, well, why do we do a fundraiser that loses money? Because it's so much fun. That's the Back to Egypt Committee. The Back to Egypt Committee is the Israelites who are wandering in the wilderness, and they're a little bit hungry, and they say, you know, it was so much better. In Egypt, at least we had meat to eat. Now, we were getting whipped every day while we were doing hard slave labor, but we had meat. And didn't that taste really good? Because the Back to Egypt committee is usually that committee that when they experience a slight bit of discomfort or they experience something that needs to change just a little bit, they rest and they get infatuated with that discomfort and forget about the massive discomfort they're leaving. The discomfort that God called them from, where Moses went into Egypt and said, "'This is not the life I have for you. "'You are not meant to be a people subjected to slavery "'and bondage and oppression. "'You are meant to be a people that gets to live freely and, "'and live differently than everybody else.'" The, the things that Deuteronomy is expressing for the kings of you should keep the law close to you and read it all the time. You should not exalt yourself over God and others. You should not have many wives. You should not have a lot of silver and gold. You should not have a lot of horses. And you should not go back to Egypt to get more horses. All of these things are meant to keep the Back to Egypt committee from forming. They're meant to keep the Israelites looking forward to the promised land because the rest of Deuteronomy is this wonderful outlay of how we should treat our neighbors, how we should love our neighbors as ourselves, how we should build a society that promotes the teamwork amongst neighbors, it promotes the love amongst neighbors and community instead of a society that promotes the oppression or capitalization or exploitation of our neighbors. And so all of Deuteronomy, and especially for how the king is supposed to be the example in here, is meant to keep us from looking back and saying, oh my gosh, how great was that? Because we forgot how awful it really was. And when you look at the Israelite kings that form, it's really no wonder that um, they all kind of jump on the back of the Egypt bandwagon, slowly but surely. The, the first king, anybody know what the first king's name of, of Israel? Saul. What? Third graders should know, right? So the first king is Saul. Saul doesn't do a very good job of keeping the law close to him or reading it. He tends to—he starts to fly off the handle and do a little bit of what he wants to do versus what God wants to do. And so Saul is deposed, and then David is anointed. Well, David doesn't do a great job at that not having many wives thing. And so he ends up—he you know lives out his term, and then Solomon comes in. Now, Solomon—this is the interesting thing, and this is where when we read Scripture— we need to recognize that there is a portion of Scripture that is, I don't want to say written by the Back to Egypt committee, but they want to make sure that you know how important their people are. Because Solomon is known, he, what is the gift he asked from God? To be the wisest person on earth. And in the midst of 1 Kings chapter 10, where we are listing out all of the reasons why Solomon led Israel down a bad path, in the midst of that, it reminds us now Solomon was the wisest person that ever did live. Except, what does Deuteronomy 17 say that a king shouldn't do? Well, Deuteronomy 17 says that a king should not acquire lots of silver and gold for themselves. But 1 Kings 10.14, the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. Which, by the way, anytime you see the number 666 in the Bible, it's never really a good example. Deuteronomy 17 tells us, again, silver and gold, 1 Kings 10:21. all King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver. Silver wasn't considered of anything in the days of Solomon. They want you to know how great things are, how wise Solomon is, and he's being rewarded for his wisdom by all the silver and gold in the world, except what is the king not supposed to acquire for himself? A bunch of silver and gold. 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 26. Solomon gathered together chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses. Now, if you go to the end of 1 Kings chapter 10, where do you think he went and got those horses from? Egypt. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 3. Among his wives were 700 princesses and 300 concubines. That is a lot of Christmas shopping. we see this progression from what is supposed to be i mean the celebration of saul as the first king is this celebrated event we're finally settled in the land we finally have some power in the land we finally have some borders of the land we finally have something to protect and something to lead we need a king and so they go get the tall ready good-looking powerful warrior of saul and immediately he breaks at least one, of what he's supposed to be. And then we get David, who is the next generation chosen by God as the runt of the litter, supposed to be the personification of humble leadership, the man after God's own heart. But he can't lean into what he's supposed to be as a king. And then it just goes off the rails with Solomon because that part in Deuteronomy 17, we haven't emphasized too much. It says, when you get into the land and you settle in it, and basically you see what everybody else is doing. You will say, I want a king like everyone else. You have been freed from everybody else. You have been freed from the way the world has existed to a promised land, to a new destiny of goodness in God's plan. But you will see what the rest of the world is doing and you'll want to do that too. You will see Egypt and all of their silver and gold and horses, which equates to military power, by the way. You will see all of their silver. You will see all of their gold. You will see the world has worked. It has worked because the biggest and the strongest and the most powerful get to have their say in what they want in the world. And you will want that too. And so you will get a king, but they can't be that way. Because you need a king who doesn't go back to Egypt. You need a king that looks at the way the world has worked and recognized that every time it has sought strength and every time it has sought power and every time a nation has sought to capitalize on another nation, it has only ended in massive destruction for everybody. That every time that a corporation or a person or a country has tried to uh, exploit or cannibalize or take over something else, it just leads to a continuous cycle of violence that keeps going over and over that we live in And the problem is, is that all we've ever known is that the powerful win. We don't recognize that when the powerful win, it creates somebody less powerful, which creates resent, and then they try and be more powerful, and it just cycles over and over and over again. And so, of course, the Israelite kings do this. That's all they've ever known. And we get this interesting juxtaposition in the part of Matthew where it says that Joseph has to take his family and flee to Egypt. It really is this interesting juxtaposition because it's in the part where the Magi are with King Herod and King Herod's working out this plan to execute all the the children. And that's where Joseph has to flee to Egypt. And and Israel has this complicated relationship with Egypt, right? It's It's a place of refuge for Abraham, for Jacob, for Joseph, for Jesus. But it's also the way the world's always been. And we see... The reason that this is really in there, the reason this is emphasized is Hosea 10:1 um, says, "I will call my son out of Egypt." And it could be a prophecy about Jesus, but many scholars just think this is about Moses. And what, what Matthew is doing here is Matthew is making sure that his readers know that Jesus is more of a Moses figure than a Herod figure, because Herod actually has his kingdom taken over at one point. Herod is, the puppet, Herod is the king and is taken over by the Greeks and then the Maccabean Revolt. And then um, ultimately he goes begging and pleading to Rome, which is the Egypt of his day. And he convinces Augustus Caesar that he is going to be the most phenomenal puppet king that could ever be had. And so Augustus Caesar gives Herod his kingdom back with the full force of Rome. But what kind of king is he really after that? He is merely just a vassal for Egypt again. And so we have Herod who is so insecure in himself, so insecure in his leadership, so not trusting of God, not reading the law over and over again, that he is going after the horses and the military might. He is going after the silver and gold. He even, I mean, he kills his own children because he's afraid they're going to take his throne. This insecurity and need for power to boost himself up instead of trusting in the God who gave them this land to begin with. And so the juxtaposition between what a king is in Herod versus what the king is in Jesus who's experienced having to flee, who's had a humble childhood, who is being equated to Moses because Jesus is a king who doesn't take over and dominate his own people. It's not a king who's going to take over and execute other nations. Jesus is a king who is leaving Egypt, who is coming out of the systems of oppression, who's coming out of the powers that be to create something new, Just like Moses led the Israelites into something new, Jesus is meant to lead us into something new only not just for the Israelites but for the entire world now so that we don't get caught up looking back to Egypt and saying, oh my gosh, it was so much better then. Because what we have to look forward to is not a kingdom built on power and domination or wealth or gold. We have it forward to a kingdom that's built upon compassion and care and mercy, this vision of heaven that is not seeking to keep anybody out but seeking to push as many people in as possible. This kingdom that is built on the idea that if I can sacrifice a little bit for somebody so they can be better, then that is what the kingdom is about. And that is not a very easy system to lean into. It's not a very easy promise for us to lean into because as soon as we face a little bit of discomfort, our property taxes raise just a little bit. Somebody questions us just a little bit. Somebody doesn't know if we're good at our job just a little bit. And we might not go back to Egypt in terms of finding another job or going back to another school or moving to another town, but we go back to Egypt in terms of, I need to go get more horses. I need to be more powerful than the person who's questioning me or threatening me. I need to go get more riches so that I can prove that I am better than this person. Instead of keeping our mind on the light of Christ that continues to grow and continues to illuminate, something different, something better, something we have faith will come about and something we have faith enough to participate in. My favorite example of somebody who was able to overcome this um, back to Egypt, is a guy named Millard Fuller. And I should really say Millard and Linda Fuller, his wife. And, and Millard grew up in Alabama, and uh, ended, you know, in meager circumstances, dad was a manager of a grocery store in town, and um, meager circumstances, but okay, life had a house and everything, and, and ended up going to the University of Alabama, and ended up getting a uh, law degree from the University of Alabama, and, and had this goal that he was gonna be a millionaire by the time he was 30. Now, this is in 19, like, early 1960s, so being a millionaire was being a millionaire. It wasn't you know, like you're a millionaire around the corner. It was you had a lot of money. And so Millard has, is a person of great ambition, and he had grown up in meager circumstances. He had seen the movies. He had seen the films and said, I want to live like that. And so he parlays this law career into a business career, and he ends up living the New York socialite Life Upper East Side, staying in all the nicest places, has a great penthouse, um, eats at all the best restaurants, knows all the right people and just living the life. And, and for years, as they wrote later in life, Millard and Linda said, you know, there was about a five year span where they were absolutely miserable living the best life that they could ever live. They felt fake. They didn't feel like they were really contributing to anything They they kind of missed that small town rootedness. Of actually knowing people and so one day they apparently the story goes is they got home and millard got home first and he was kind of leaning there and he grabbed his drink that had become kind of a common habit and and linda came home after that and saw him and said you don't you don't look well are you okay honey and millard finally after five years admitted i'm miserable and i said well, what's wrong and and, and she kind of thought maybe it was her, but he says, no, no, you're the best part about my life right now. And, and they had grown up in the Disciples of Christ Church and kind of had, had fallen away from that habit, and so they decided that they should get back into church. And so they found this church around the corner. It wasn't Disciples of Christ. It was another denomination, but they got in there, and, and someone preached um, the rich young ruler story, which was the story of, if you are to follow me, you should give everything up, which most people don't follow that very well, and Millard and Linda got home from church that day, and they, and they said, well, you know, so I visited a friend recently. They had gone through Georgia, and they had visited this friend, and this guy was a part of some movement called Koinonia Farms. Koinonia Farms was in southwest Georgia, and it was this idea of a Christian community where people lived and worked the land and shared with each other, some people who grew up in the 60s call this a hippie commune they call it a body of christ and he said you know i've been to this place called Cornelia farms and it just seemed so different and so miller took linda down to Cornelia farms and next day they decided okay we're gonna sell it all and we're moving to Cornelia farms so they sold their New York penthouse, they sold their cars, they sold everything about them, and, and they went, and they took, you know, a portion of this money to Cornelia Farms, where they started working the land, and they started uh, living in Christian community, where everyone kind of shared with each other on this small little farm. But Millard noticed that in the, the community, there were people outside of their farm that were hurting, and he asked, well, why are we just growing crops for ourselves? There are people, you know, the Bible commands us to not, totally uh, pick up everything from our field, but let the poor glean from us. And so he said, everyone said, oh, we hadn't read that part of the Bible. And so they started doing that. And they started kind of holding like farmer's markets for the poor who are around them. And, and then Millard, and I mean, just is a really smart guy. And he recognizes earlier than some that the, um, the key to success for getting out of poverty is security. And security is found in a home. So like sustainable housing is like the key that people say to eliminating poverty. And so he says, well, what about this? What if we set up this fund and in the fund, um, people who don't have the money for a down payment on a house um, could get the capital for a house. And so they could buy the building materials and then we would go help them build the house. And everyone says, well, wow, that sounds like an interesting idea. And he goes, here's the other thing. In the Bible, it says, because we don't want these people to be exploited, we're not going to charge them interest on the loan that we give them for the building materials. And so everybody says, oh, we haven't read that part of the Bible before. Let's do that. And, and so Millard and this other guy and Linda lead this charge where they start loaning people the money to buy the building materials, and then they help them build the house on top of that. And eventually, they realize, well, we could actually get the building materials cheaper if we buy them in bulk. And, and people around the country hear about this idea. People in Georgia start coming to America's Georgia to learn this model. And uh, so they, they say, okay, we're going to really make this a nonprofit. We're going to call it the Fund for Humanity. And it becomes this kind of banking system. But people say, well, we don't just want to bank. We want to get our hands dirty. We want to go meet these people. We want to build houses so that people can do this. And it says, okay, well... We need to build a new ecosystem for humanity. We need to build kind of this market where people have security for humanity. Oh, you know what we need? We need a habitat for humanity. We need a habitat for humanity to prosper. I think they've helped something like 35 million people since 1968 to have the security of a dream And it's not done by the exploitation of poor people so that we know they're desperate. We can get their money and then drive them farther into poverty. It's done in a way that says, we want to help you get out of poverty. We want to help you leave Egypt. We don't want you to be dependent on Habitat for Humanity for the rest of your life. We want you to be dependent on God for the rest of your life. And we want to free you from all the shackles of debt. We want to free you from all of these things so that you can go to the promised land and you can pay it forward so that you can love other people and your kids can grow up more secure and they can love other people. It is this mission of ending generational poverty through housing, all based in the Bible, that's not meant to gain power over a homeowner. It's meant to empower a homeowner. And that's not an easy thing to do when you're leaving millions upon millions of dollars on the table for yourself. But it is what the king who had to flee to Egypt tells us to do. The king who doesn't go to Egypt for his own security, he goes to Egypt so that he can bring people out of it. And our job is looking at a kingdom of peace, not by domination. We're not the Pax Romana. The Pax Romana was Augustus Caesar's 100 years of peace because he killed everybody that threatened him. That's not our peace. Our peace is when we're threatened, we turn our cheek and love our neighbor and give them the cloak off our back so that they can know what true peace feels like. And because we have the peace enough that God will provide that we can be generous that way. We're called to something different. And we have a king that we're going to celebrate the birth of that I think it's about time we start calling him a king. Because this is the king who ought to govern our lives. This is the king who calls us to something different. This is the king who tells us, don't go back to Egypt because I have something better for you. And we've seen human kings throughout scripture and history that cannot lead us there. But there is a baby that is being born that can. And so as we pray, and as we come on Christmas Eve, this is more than a cute story about a baby and animals. This is God entering the world so that things will be different. And we are people who believe that things should be different. Let's pray. Versus God, we give our lives to you so that when we are worried, we know that you are a higher power. When we are afraid, we know that you have the last say. And ultimately God, when we are intimidated, we know that you have faced all the trials of Egypt and even worse. And you have been victorious. And so God, may we subscribe to your way and truth and life. May we know you as the way, the truth, and the life. And may we turn our lives over to you so that we might be a candle burning brightly that cannot be covered by a basket. So that others might see something different. And maybe want to be a part of a world that doesn't continue to destroy itself, but loves one another. And it's in your son's name we pray.
0: Amen. Thanks for listening. We would love if you could leave us a review on whatever platform you are listening today and let us know how we are doing. Be sure to check out our social media pages at CreekwoodUMC and our website, CreekwoodUMC.org for more ways to get involved at Creekwood United Methodist Church in person, online, or both. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.